This podcast series contains discussion of historical violence, racism, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Well, it's going to take a break. It's going to take some luck. It's going to take something like this podcast reaching a national audience and the right person at the right time hears this and realizes, hey, I heard in my family that something like this happened in South Carolina. And then they realized, hey, this, this podcast is talking about one, a member of my family. This is Michael Burgess, a history teacher at River Bluff High School in Lexington, South Carolina. Michael is a native of the Palmetto State, steeped in the area's history going back to before the Revolutionary War. He tries to share his passion for the past with the students who go through his classroom. For the last two years, Michael has been consumed by his research into a case from South Carolina history, a historical injustice that he's been racking his brain to try to find a way to get corrected, even if it would be more than a hundred years late. It's the case of a young black man who was lynched in the same town where Michael lives, works, and raises a family. His research into the case would uncover a unique confluence of secrets, lies, and bigotry that led to Willie Leaphart's death and would lead Michael on a quest to right a 130-year-old wrong. I'm Bristow Marchant, a reporter for the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina, and this is The Wrong Walk Home, The Lynching of Willie Leaphart, a podcast from McClatchy and the state looking at a long-forgotten killing in South Carolina, a brazen murder that tells us something about where this country has come from and how it still reverberates in the state today. Michael's research began a couple of years ago while he was taking students on a history hike to view historical sites in Lexington. That's when one of his high school students asked a pointed question about the history of the area where they all lived, a question a teacher today might be uncomfortable answering. And on one of these history hikes, uh, in 2021, a student asked, and my history hikes are run by my students, uh, were there any lynchings here? And, and were there any lynchings in Lexington? And while obviously there were lynchings in Lexington, I couldn't speak to when and where and who and began researching and using from the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama, their lynching list. The answer to that student's question, by the way, is yes. There were lynchings in Lexington. Today, it's a town of 24,000, about 12 miles west of the state capital of Columbia. It's a fast-growing suburb full of shopping centers and newly built housing developments. To the north of town is Lake Murray, a popular recreation spot for boating and fishing. Today, Lexington County is 70% white, 14% black. Per capita income in 2010 was about $26,000. It's the kind of place where Donald Trump carried the county by more than 30 points. In 2024, Lexington is being transformed from its small-town roots into a more suburban and exurban community. But back in 1890, it was also an area undergoing serious and unprecedented changes. My name is J.R. Fennell. I'm director of the Lexington County Museum in Lexington, South Carolina. My real name is uh, James Russell, but uh, just always been called J.R. J.R. told me about how Lexington was wrecked by General Sherman's march on the state capital of Columbia in the closing days of the Civil War. 
but over the next quarter century, it was again a growing community, at least by 1800 standards. Lexington was a, uh, a kind of a changing place. You still had some of the effects of the Civil War going on. You were going from an almost completely agricultural society to a somewhat more industrial one. And so you had the development of several textile mills in the county that allowed for mostly white farmers to work and uh, you know, leave the fields. But historically, Lexington has also had a darker side. You know, it was also a time of kind of tension, uh, racial tensions. Uh, of course, this was going on throughout America, especially throughout the South. You really had kind of the rise of what they called in the newspaper the white caps. And so that's what we would refer to as the, uh, you know, basically the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, they there are newspaper articles out there about you know, the white caps terrorizing black people, sometimes driving them off their land. They also attacked white people, uh, including white men in the Dutch fort who were said to have had interracial relationships and maybe, you know, kind of violated some other kind of quote unquote social codes at the time. This is a time period that still has lingering effects for the black community in Lexington today. I mean, I grew up in the era where we would have the KKK riding through here on their horses. And uh, the word would be out, they're coming through. So you had to cut out all the lights. This is Constance Fleming, a longtime resident of an African-American neighborhood in Lexington that residents call The Hill, describing what it was like to grow up black in South Carolina 70 years ago. I remember vividly getting down on the floor and my grandmother putting her hand over me to make sure that I was safe and that hopefully those horses would keep going and not stop. So um, Lexington has gone through a lot. From 1877 to 1950, Lexington County also witnessed eight lynchings of African-Americans. These were murders, often committed by large groups of people in an organized, planned effort. Black people could be killed if they were accused of committing a crime against a white person, without ever seeing the inside of a courtroom or a jail cell. Or they could be killed if they simply violated the social norms that governed the Jim Crow South. In many of the more than 4,000 lynchings nationwide documented by the Equal Justice Initiative, we have very few details of what happened, or about the people who were murdered. But one story Michael Burgess found while doing his research stood out. The very first lynching they document for Lexington County was the 1890 lynching of Willie Lee Park. Uh, they didn't have much more information than that, but once I started looking into it to provide an answer to my student tour guides, a wealth of information popped up. Uh, numerous newspaper articles from 1890 covering what you know his 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 arrest for uh, the charge he was indicted for to his trial. It's a story about an accusation of a serious crime, about a seemingly innocent teenager charged with actions his attorney said aren't physically possible, about a legal system that didn't protect the rights of black defendants, allegations of a scandalous cover-up, and finally, a violent murder by a vigilante mob inside the county jail. It's a dramatic story about a dark period in American history, the unsteady transition from slavery 
to a new kind of multiracial society that has echoes of news headlines today. Now to a deadly shooting that's inflamed racial tensions in a Georgia community. Tonight, video has surfaced of an African-American man being chased down and killed. His family says he was just out jogging. It's a story that unexpectedly ties in some of the most important people in South Carolina at the time, reaching all the way to a governor who still stirs controversy in the 21st century. Willie Leapart's story could be almost any of the estimated 4,000 lynchings of black men in this country, whose tragic stories are still largely unknown to us a century later. But in this one case, a combination of official records, high-profile press coverage of the whole sordid saga, and a dedicated local researcher brought 130-year-old secrets to light. We don't know much about the life of Willie Leapart. In 1890, he was 16 years old. Although even that age depends on the record you're looking at, he was certainly too young to have lived through slavery. The Civil War had ended 25 years earlier. But the Jim Crow era, when the system of legal segregation that would govern life in the South until deep into the 20th century, was already well underway. We don't have very detailed records of many individual black lives from back then. But in Willie's case, we do know a lot about how he died. Willie died on May 5th, 1890, inside the Lexington County Jail, shot multiple times by a massed mob of vigilantes who had broken into the jail to kill him. That's right, Willie Leapart was lynched inside a jail cell, and the lynch mob had to break into the jail in order to kill him. Willie was there because he had already been brought to trial and convicted of breaking into one of Lexington's finest homes and sexually assaulting a young white woman. He was sentenced to death and was awaiting the date of his execution. But his killers were worried that wouldn't happen fast enough. And maybe, thanks to other developments which we'll get to later, that it might not happen at all. In South Carolina in the 1890s, a black man accused of something like what Willie Leapart was accused of was as good as dead. But before he was lynched, something unusual happened. Willie Leapart actually went through the legal system the way it was supposed to work. He was arrested, he was tried, he was convicted. And then his attorney launched his own investigation in preparation for an appeal. That means we know more about Willie's case than we do about most lynchings from this era. There are police reports, court records, legal appeals, first-person statements, and enough contemporaneous newspaper reporting to make Willie's case seem like the trial of the century, with enough twists and turns to keep 19th century readers coming back for the next installment. If Willie's court-sanctioned death sentence had actually been carried out, one paper noted at the time that he would have been the first black person charged with such a crime who has ever been legally executed in South Carolina. Constance Fleming didn't remember hearing the details of Willie's story growing up in Lexington more than a half century later, but she knew enough to know that something very bad had happened in her community. The main thing was, I say, don't ask, don't tell, or they just didn't discuss it much because they knew this neighborhood knew that something was done improperly. Constance's daughter, Ebony Bowers, grew up knowing even less about Willie and what happened to him. She first heard about Willie in one of the least likely venues you might have imagined. 
I became aware of it when I did the like ghost tour of Lexington during like Halloween time about, I guess about five or six years ago is when I became aware of it. Really? Or then I hadn't heard anything about it. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on that and what that was like and what that felt like to to hear that for the first time? Yes. I had a friend of mine that wanted to go on a ghost tour. I'm not into ghost anything. So she talked me into it and I said, okay, I'll go. The Lexington County Museum offers a ghost tour of the town of Lexington and they take them to different spots where historical events took place. And um, on that tour is when we went to the courthouse and they informed us, you know, where the um, jailhouse used to be and they said, and this is where that event took place. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. what What is it about this event? So they explained that along the tour. And that's really how I found out about it. And what, what was that like? I mean, obviously it sounded like it was it was kind of a surprise to you to, to hear that on a ghost tour. Well, it was a surprise, but then it wasn't. Because honestly, as a minority, we're used to those stories. We know them like the back of our hands. It's like, yeah, that make, that sounds about right for the time it took place. And, and of course, then with the witnesses and the people that could have been witnesses, but somehow decided not to speak anymore, of course, because of intimidation. And with mama speaking of the rides, the KKK rides that would come through when she was little, I, it totally makes sense to me. And I asked the question, I remember asking the question, well, what happens if if we're not quiet off? We don't open the door when they come through. And my grandmother explained it to me that they would, uh, they considered that to be disrespectful and they could actually take, they have actually taken people out and um, beat them up and to teach them a lesson, but not respecting their ride through the hill. Let's take a step back. Before we get to the story of Willie Leapart, you first have to know the story of Rosa Cannon, whose story of a violent attack inside her home would ultimately lead to Willie's death. Rosa was a white woman and the daughter of a mill worker from a small South Carolina community some 20 miles west of Lexington. But in the spring of 1890, when she was 18, Cannon had come to live in the large antebellum Lexington home of Simeon and Martha Ann Corley, a very prominent family in the area, and sometimes a controversial one, for reasons that will become apparent later. On the night of January 26, 1890, Cannon and her 14-year-old brother Owen were babysitting the Corley's young daughter Bessie, while Bessie's parents attended an evening service at the town's main church about a half mile away. This is Michael again. The allegation that is made that night, based on Rosa Cannon's testimony, uh, is that she was sitting by Bessie Corley's bedside, the, the young child of Manuel Simeon Corley, who was sleeping and reading with her 14-year-old brother, Owen. After Bessie had gone to bed, Rosa would later say that she heard a noise outside. When she went to investigate, she was surprised by a black man who she said came into the home through an open window. In her grand jury testimony, in her trial indictment, will say they raised a bright light to see if they knew him and asked him who he was, and he said he was Bailey from Columbia. Bailey from Columbia demands to know where Mr. Corley is and then demands that she get him some food. 
once they inform him that they don't know where Mr. Corley is, they don't know where Mr. Corley keeps his money. Then things turned more ominous. As they moved from the bedroom onto a breezeway to an attached kitchen, looking for some food, Bailey indicated he was carrying a gun and demanded money from the two young people. Owen, Rosa's younger brother, made a run for help, Rosa said, but the stranger grabbed hold of her and began to attack her. Cannon described the attack later in a written statement she made to investigators. So sudden and violent was the outrageous assault and blood-curdling the threats that I was paralyzed by fear and my heart seemed to stop beating and I thought I was dying and fully expected to do so. Screaming was of no avail because it seemed that every man in the whole neighborhood was gone a mile away to church. That's about as explicit as Rosa's description gets in the only statement that's come down to us in her own words. What exactly happened in the house that night would go on to become a point of serious contention, but it would lead to a very serious situation, Willie Leapart facing a charge of rape. The intruder allegedly forced Rosa out of the house with his hands around her throat, but either her screams or her brother Owen attracted attention, and Bailey ran off. A short time later, after a small crowd had gathered at the Corley house, Rosa was presented with a suspect to identify as her attacker. The brute was a stranger to me, though I had seen him before. But every look of his hideous face and the tone of his disgusting voice was all so indelibly stamped on my memory that I described him so accurately that he was at once caught and identified by me and my brother without the possibility of a mistake. And the party who was brought before me for identification by my description and whom I identified is the party whom they tell me is Willie Leapart. The statement doesn't say who brought Willie to Rosa to be identified or where he was found. There's no indication besides this story that Rosa had ever met Willie before, but her identification became the key piece of evidence that landed Willie and for a while his brother in the Lexington County Jail for the rest of his short life. What happened to Willie is sadly not going to be unusual in South Carolina history. There are lots of historical injustices, and it could very easily be a full-time job checking into all of the possible things that we could check into here in South Carolina. We talked to an expert on the intersection of race and the law to get some context for Willie's story. My name is Seth Stoughton. I'm a law professor at the Joseph F. Rice School of Law at the University of South Carolina. I'm also the faculty director of the Excellence in Policing and Public Safety program here. From his research, Stoughton knows how violence was often directed against African Americans during the unsettled period after the Civil War. Formerly enslaved blacks were now claiming equal rights when a lot of white people were eager to turn the clock back by whatever means necessary. When you dive into that, that worldview, it explains a little bit more why they were so comfortable using violence against uh, competing businesses, as well as individuals like Willie, who they suspected of, of doing some wrong to usually a white woman, right? And it, it really comes down to this idea of social equality. And if, you know, if it was a white man transgressing against a white woman, well, that's the kind of thing that laws are designed to address. And the, the white perpetrator and the white victim in that case, share a level of social equality, right? There, there's a level of 
parity uh, between them. Blacks, at least in the white supremacist worldview, did not have, and I suppose in modern times do not have in the white supremacist worldview, do not have that level of social equality. So for a black man to open a business competing with whites or more applicable to this case, for a black man to purportedly assault a white woman was not just viewed as an assault against the individual victim, the way that it would be if a white man had done it. It was really viewed as an assault against whites themselves, right? Against all of whitedom. That is, it was a pushback against white supremacy. And when I say white supremacy there, I don't mean like white supremacists like the KKK. I mean the baked in idea that whites are inherently superior, well, if whites are inherently superior, then surely it's even more of an offense for someone who is so socially inferior to inflict some kind of harm, economic or physical, on their social superiors. At the same time as Willie was arrested, jail records show his brother Edward was also booked into the county jail. He would be held there for almost a month until February 20th, the day before Willie's trial, Rosa indicated in her statement that she believed her attacker was alerted by an accomplice that other people were approaching, and even identifies him as a younger brother. So she must have also identified Willie's brother the night of the attack as well. After his release, Edward drops out of the historical record, which sadly is not that unusual. While we know how Willie Leapart died, we don't know that much about how he lived. We do know he's 16 years old. He does appear on the 1880 census. It seems that his mother died before, after he was born because she's on the 1870 census, but not on the 1880 census. Uh, we don't know if they lived outside of town as a farming family or if the father, Dolly Part, was a farm laborer or if they live in town on a street which today Lexington Town Hall is at, Maiden Lane, where there will be a vibrant African-American neighborhood until 1950s, 1960s, until uh, the town acquires the property and builds Town Hall. As best we can tell, his father will stay in Lexington, Dahl Leapart, and his father will actually be in 1910 in what is at that time called the Lexington County Poorhouse. Ironically, the African-American poorhouse was located on the same property of the Carroll Campbell Alzheimer's Center, and that most likely Dahl Leapart died there and is, is buried in the same potter's field that is on either that property or the water plant property that his young son Willie was buried at. But Michael believes there are surviving relatives of Willie out there somewhere and that they can help clear his name if it's possible to find them, someone who can take the place of Willie's next of kin and file a legal appeal in his name under South Carolina law. The most concrete information we have about Willie Leapart comes from the time he was in jail. He was booked into the Lexington County Jail that night, not on some charge like breaking and entering, but something much more serious. His booking sheet shows Willie was charged with assault with intent to commit rape. That was a very serious charge to make against a black man about a white woman in the segregated South. And by the time Willie goes to trial on February 21st, 
the charge would change again, and now Willie would be actually convicted of rape. That accusation isn't explicitly made anywhere in Rosa's statement. Maybe because in 1890, it's not something an 18-year-old woman would be expected to talk about. Maybe the closest she comes is when Rosa talks about how her attacker began to tear her clothes while using what she describes as, quote, language I cannot repeat even to my mother. But there's also the possibility that there may have been reasons why the charge against Willie Leapart needed to be changed. Willie Leapart would have his own story to tell about that night, one with witnesses who could support an alibi. But a black man charged with attacking a white woman in 1890 South Carolina might not live to put up much of a defense. Next time on The Wrong Walk Home. Since last Monday, when the grand jury brought in a true bill against Willie Lee Park for rape, Lexington has been expecting a sensation in the way of a lynching. And says, look, we don't agree with giving African-American males the right to vote. It is one of the things um, that black people find themselves having to navigate as a part of their daily lives, particularly in the South. And whether that's coincidence uh, or somebody thought maybe it would be um, useful to get rid of it, it is the missing is one of the missing pieces to this story. I'm Bristow Marchant. The Wrong Walk Home is a product of the state newspaper. It's produced by Lume Alasali, Jennifer Molina, Prasanthi Pickett, Kata Stevens, and Joshua Boucher. Special thanks to Don Blunt. For lots more on this story, visit thestate.com slash Leapart. If you have more details on Willie Leapart's life, death, or descendants, email me at b marchant at the state.com. <laughs>